Welcome to the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. I'm Kara Hansel-Kihan. Today we'll discuss a new study by Kanashiro Takauchi et al. titled Efficacy of a Growth Hormone-Releasing Hormone Agonist in a Murine Model of Cardiometabolic Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction. This article was published April 25th, 2023. Joining us today are Associate Editor Dr. Jonathan Kirk, Senior Author Dr. Joshua Hare, and Expert Dr. Julie McMullen. Let's get started. Jonathan? Thank you, Kara. Josh, Julie, thanks for joining us today. Uh, When I first read this paper, I was really impressed by both the, the translational relevance of it as well as it's a powerhouse of methods that you've brought to bear on this. Josh, could you start us off by just taking us through uh, the major findings of this study? Thank you, Jonathan. And it's a real pleasure to be here and to do this podcast. The paper, it's best viewed in the context of a series of papers we've had from our lab motivated to understand HEFPEF in animal models. The HEFPEF story, I think, is one of the most fascinating tales of you know modern cardiovascular medicine because it's taught us a lot of humility a we had this paradigm about heart failure that was linked to a low ejection fraction for decades that was almost the defining feature of the syndrome we had a concept of a final common pathway of remodeling and uh, that no matter what the injury to the heart was the heart got injured dysfunctional and dilated with a low ejection fraction. And we clearly have had to revise that. But based on clinical findings that 50% of patients and a growing proportion of them have heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction. Compounding the challenge to understand this condition was the lack of animal models. So I think there's really two components here. One is to study a variety of animal models And we've had a series of papers with different animal models. And then to try to understand signaling, etiology, and therefore therapeutics. We became very uh, attracted to this particular model, the cardiometabolic model, because it's highly reminiscent of the human condition. A large proportion, but not all, just a large proportion of patients, human patients with HEFPEF have it due to metabolic syndrome which is in essence uh, a combination of obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. So it was actually um, out of the lab of uh, Joe Hill at UT Southwestern that they took this model. They, they decided to recreate this in, in mice by giving them a high-fat diet and L-name, a nitric oxide synthase inhibitor to create hypertension. And lo and behold, the animals did develop HEFPEF in a way that recapitulated human HEFPEF quite substantially, including, and I think most importantly, the animals not only get diastolic dysfunction, but they also have exercise limitation, which is the key symptom of of HEFPEF in humans. It's not a disease at rest, it's a disease that's brought out by exercise. So armed with the ability to make that model, we decided that we had to take our interest in growth hormone 
releasing hormone agonists and try it in HFPEF. We had previously uh, used this agonist in models of HEF-REF, but having the model, the HEFPEF model, the Joe Hill beautiful cardiometabolic model and the the drug on hand made it a natural hypothesis to test whether this pathway was operative in the cardiometabolic HEFPEF model. And so we set out to do the study and we're very pleased to find that essentially all of the features, including particularly the exercise capacity, which again, to me is the integrated proof of the pudding, responded to treatment or administration of the growth hormone releasing hormone agonist. So, you know, if you look figure by figure, we basically have looked at uh, all of the different aspects of the physiology and molecular biology. We have, of course, the the features of the animal in an integrated fashion, their, their blood pressure and weight. Now, interestingly, the drug doesn't reduce the blood pressure or the weight, so it's not having a secondary effect by having an antihypertensive effect. It seems to have a direct myocardial effect. If you look at the myocardial features of diastolic dysfunction and running distance, both of them respond to the treatment as does actual features of the myocytes and the myocyte hypertrophy and fibrosis are restored towards normal. And then a variety of uh, molecular signals that are associated with the HEFPEF syndrome are restored to normal in the myocardium by administration of the the agonist. So this was very exciting for us. And um, that's the basic overview of the the findings. And um, I'll be quiet and turn it back to you. Thanks, Josh. That was a, a great uh, introduction to, to not just the, the paper, but some uh, historical context that, uh, frankly, all papers have, but it's it's so important to know. Julie, can you sort of expand on Josh's background here with HEFPEF about why is HEFPEF such a, a challenging syndrome to treat? And thus, why is, is this paper so important? Thank you, Jonathan. So I guess before I specifically get into HEFPEF, just to very briefly note that, as we know, heart failure can broadly be classified into two major types, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF, and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF. So, I mean, we know HEFREF is characterised by systolic failure where the left ventricle doesn't contract normally and fails to pump enough blood into our circulation. Ejection fraction is 40% or less. Whereas with HEFPEF, it's characterized by diastolic failure and the heart muscle becomes stiff and is unable to relax normally. And in this particular setting, the heart is unable to properly fill with blood between each heartbeat, but still pumps with an ejection fraction of 50% or more. And so I guess while HEFREF and HEFPEF have some common symptoms, the treatment approaches are really very different. And so in general, the treatment of HEFREF is focused on reducing the workload on the heart and improving contractility. And medications such as ACE inhibitors and beta blockers have been found to be very effective. By contrast, the treatment of HEFPEF is proving far more challenging. And so there are a number of reasons for this. Firstly, HEFPEF is typically a more complex syndrome than HEFREF. It involves multiple organs and associated with more comorbidities, including obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, and increasing age. 
We also have a far more limited understanding of the underlying mechanisms of PEF-PEF. And this is in part because of a limited number of preclinical models that really reflect the key features seen in the clinic. This includes the presence of obesity, hypertension, diastolic dysfunction, lung congestion, and exercise intolerance. And I think this really highlights the importance of the studies from Professor Hare and his colleagues and the work he's done looking at a particular treatment. And this leads to my first question. There has been a lot of discussion as to whether preclinical HEF-PEF models reflect HEF-PEF clinical criteria. Perhaps could you please expand and describe why you chose your particular model and some of the key features which were really relevant to the clinical presentation? Yes, thanks. There are a lot of comorbidities and it's unclear whether this is more of a systemic disease or just a myocardial disease. Now, the comorbid scenario that's most recognized is the cardiometabolic, but there are, there are other disease states that are not cardiometabolic that are also are associated with HEFPEF. One of the key scenarios is renal failure. So there's, there's HEFPEF with renal failure, and there are a variety of models there. And it was for that reason that we have done a series of studies in the last two years in a variety of models. And this was the culmination and the one we're, we're extremely excited about because of, the, because of the importance of the cardiometabolic. We've also studied the 5-6 nephrectomy model in, in pigs, as well as a model of angiotensin II over infusion or, or continuous infusion of angiotensin II that also resulted in HEFPEP. So there are a number of ways you can stimulate HEFPEF pathophysiology, and it is reminiscent in my mind of the variety of ways we call, create animal models of HEFREF. I, I spent many decades working on HEFREF before now, and rapid pacing models in animals or infarct models or toxic models or inflammatory models. Um, a variety of insults have been used to create heart value with reduced ejection fraction. And I think it, it speaks to the uh, humility that we have to have, I think, in translational research, which is that there's a tremendous amount, amount of empir empiricism that we have to accept. I don't think we can create the perfect model that recapitulates humans. We can create a model, we could test that model, but ultimately the proof of the pudding, if we're right, uh, requires that translational pathway, looking in multiple models and then taking it into humans. And I think that's the ultimate goal of an experiment like this is to try to re recapitulate human HEFPEF, which is incredibly complicated as it is, and then have to you know, have the uncertainty that this, that this model is perfect. All, all we can say for sure is that it has the comorbidities, they're artificially created, of course, and it has a desired and consistent response to the the pathway. So it, it gives us a way forward is what I would say. So Josh, you mentioned previously about how targeting this pathway, uh, GHRH via this compound, uh, MR356, you it's shown success already with uh, HEFREF, models of HEFREF. And like Julie mentioned, one of the challenges with HEFPEF is that our approaches with HEFREF reduced ejection fraction haven't really been efficacious in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So what do you think makes targeting this pathway uh, unique? Why can this drug treat both reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction? 
Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question, of course. And again, it it speaks to the fact that medicine's in large part empiric. We take drugs, you try them, you you think you understand the signaling pathway, but interestingly enough, oftentimes you learn a lot about the signaling once you've got the clinical response to be the guide. In that context, there is another example of one class of drugs that is functional in both HEPPEF and HEFREF, which is the SGLT2 inhibitor, which by the way, is a completely empirically discovered class of drugs because as far as we know, the SGLT2 receptor is not present in the myocardium. So, so these drugs were discovered through a series of clinical trials over the last five to seven years and is the home run for HEPPEF now. SGLT2 inhibitors appear to be highly efficacious in HEPPEF and HEFREF, but we really don't understand the mechanism. So I think there's, there's a precedent. There certainly is a precedent for a signaling pathway that could be responsive to therapy in both HEPPEF and, and HEFREF. But it leads me to sort of address what is the signaling that is going on with, with um, GHRH agonists in the myocardium. And it's very complicated. This is another sort of historical story because I think as, as the listeners should be aware, the growth hormone releasing hormone pathway was thought largely to be restricted to the central nervous system as part of the hypothalamic pituitary access. And it was uh, in the last, I would say, 15 to 20 years that the investigator who actually won the Nobel Prize for discovering and delineating the hypothalamic pituitary axis discovered that these hypothalamic hormones are operative systemically. So the, the insight that the growth hormone releasing hormone receptor is present in the myocardium is something we've been aware of for about 20 years due to the work of Professor Shalley who is a co-author on the paper and the uh, and responsible for the synthesis of these agonists of this of this um, of this peptide hormone, but we really haven't completely understood the downstream signaling pathways in the myocardium or linked the exact signaling events to the physiology, and that's really the the prime focus of our laboratory right now. The part of the laboratory that's interested in HEPF. It's it's absolutely fascinating and appears to have a unique, unique downstream impact. It will give us uh, work to do for the next many years. One of the things that struck me uh, in looking through this paper was just the 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 breadth of HEFPEF phenotypes that the treatment reversed. And so, uh, Julie, when when you were reading through, what were you? mechanistically sort of most surprised by that this therapy, uh, this GHRH agonist was able to reverse. Thanks, Jonathan. And I guess Josh has sort of touched on it to a degree, and that's in relation to signaling and the hypertrophy and the fibrosis. But before I get to the question, I guess I just wanted to make one comment. I thought the experimental design was was very robust in this study, which which I think was great. The, the authors really went to a lot of trouble of characterizing the models before the intervention or the treatment, which I think is just really important for these sorts of studies. So I'm obviously very interested in hypertrophy, differences between adaptive growth and pathological hypertrophy. And I guess I was intrigued by the findings in relation to signaling with ERK as well as AKT. 
And so maybe Josh, could you comment on those findings and whether you think they are contributing in any way to the anti-hypertrophic or anti-fibrotic properties that you've observed? Yeah, thanks. That is the issue that um, is front and center for us now. All of the, you know, all of the data, all of the appropriate models aren't included in the in the published work, but we we are, are very focused now in the laboratory on the PI3 AKT uh, pathway and are looking at some of the downstream uh, signals of AKT, one of which being mTOR. So uh, we're working on that. This, this finding in this paper gave us a, a tremendous number of clues about signaling pathways we could pursue in uh, knockout and knock-in models. Um, we're presently doing that in the laboratory as well as trying to model this in iPS cells. One of, one of the great advantages of iPS cells, you know, they're, they're touted widely as a potential for modeling disease in a dish or maybe as a therapeutic, but they're also very powerful for signaling because it, 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 there's much more high throughput that we could do. And so we are studying the PI3 AKT mTOR pathway now in, in iPS cells. And I do, I, uh, I'm more of the mind that that is a dominant uh, downstream signaling pathway. And we hope to produce and, and provide more data on that in the future. I think another um, very surprising but encouraging, I guess, result was how effective your treatment really was. And that made me wonder about whether your drug might be having an impact on skeletal muscle. We know that in heart failure patients, many of the beneficial effects of exercise are attributed to the beneficial effects on skeletal muscle. So do you think some of the benefits you saw were because the treatment was acting on skeletal muscle or some other organs in addition to the heart? Another, another great question. In this particular study, we didn't look at skeletal muscle, but other investigators in other settings have looked at skeletal muscle, particularly in sarcopenia, you know, aging-related sarcopenia. I think it's a wonderful suggestion for us to pursue in, in this model. And we, at this point, haven't, haven't looked at that. So Josh, I was delighted to see in figure four that you even looked at some sarcomeric proteins here, specifically phosphorylation. And what was yeah. interesting is that it altered phosphorylation of known critical regulatory sites targeted by, by PKA. Is this broadly affecting beta adrenergic signaling and PKA signaling in the myocyte? Or is this, do you think it's restricted to the sarcomeric proteins in some way? Uh, another great question. We didn't look at cyclic AMP in this paper, but we did in a paper we had in cardiovascular research recently, and we did indeed see a modulation of cyclic AMP. And I think it speaks to that complexity I previously alluded to, that while we know the receptor is present and we can get phenotypic effects, and we're, we still need to do more to dissect out the individual effects. In my earlier stages of career, I was very interested in compartmentalization of signals in the myocardium and how, you know, things like NOS and cyclic nucleotides could work in a compartmentalized fashion and how you can have, you know, you can have a cy cyclic AMP signal focused on the myofilaments and not necessarily on, uh, on the calcium cycling, but we, we just, um, we have more to do to, to dissect out all of those relative contributions. Julie. So 
in this uh, study um, published in AJP Heart, uh, focused uh, solely on male mice, uh, which disclaimer is no longer allowed in the journal for uh, people preparing manuscripts. But this HEFPEF is is known to be uh, more prevalent in females and women, and um, is considered sort of a, a risk factor. I'm interested in your insights as to whether or not you think that this uh, this treatment strategy would be efficacious in females as well. I think that's a really great question and a really important question. And I guess one limitation of the model that was used in this study, which was on the C57 Black 6N background, is that the HEF-PEF phenotype is less dramatic in female mice compared to the male mice. I am aware of some reports that in the C57 Black 6J mice, the phenotype is actually more dramatic in the female mice. And I think it would be really important to, to repeat this study on that particular background or another model where we do see um, increased, I guess, phenotype in females. And so I guess my, my question to Josh is, is this something you've considered or are considering for the future? We are most definitely very focused in the lab on um, sex as a biological variable. And um, as you know, it's not just the journal, it's also the NIH that requires you to address that. We, uh, we will be repeating the experiments in, in female mice. We've looked at two strains of mice thus far in males, the, uh, the C57 black six and the CD1. The model we did in the pigs was in all females. So, um, you know, these it, it just speaks to the fact that you have to think about these projects in terms of a body of work and not and you're not able to do everything in, in one paper. So, yes, we are we are um, repeating these experiments in female mice. I think another really important factor is ageing. And I know ageing is another model you have looked at. Yes. It's an important feature of HEF-PEF. Um, are you able to comment as to whether signaling of growth hormone releasing, releasing hormone changes with ageing and whether you think your treatment would be effective in a setting of both ageing and HEF-PEF? Uh, again, this would be my speculation, but there is a whole group of investigators who are studying the growth hormone releasing hormone pathway in in aging and they appear to see effects there as well i want to also agree with you that aging is probably the dominant risk factor for half path as as it is for many cardiovascular diseases and we are most interested in looking at older animal old animals with half path as well all right, Josh, I have a, a very important question for you, which is in figure four, I can see that you ran Titan gels, separating Titan. These are challenging gels to run. Uh, and at least in my lab, whoever uh, is asked to do those feel like they got the uh, short straw. So who in the author list got the short straw here in running Titan gels? <laughs> the I'm, I hope I don't um, uh, massacre his name, but... Uh, the second author, Lauro Takeuchi, is an investigator in our team who has really taken on this challenge and, and does a, just a beautiful job with the Western blots and um, immunohistochemical stainings. And so 
he he has done the uh, Titan gels um, very ably in a number of settings, and we he's we always go to Lauro for the Titan gel. Oh, great! My kudos to him, Julie. Any other questions? So you performed a very comprehensive cardiac workup using both echo and PV loop. And I know there are a number of investigators who are interested in establishing the HEFPEF model in their own laboratories. My question is, do you think both echo and PV loop is absolutely essential to characterize the HEFPEF model? And what, what are the most important parameters to look at? We're very fortunate um, I'm I'm very fortunate that I have kept up those two techniques in my lab for for decades, and that that emerged from how, how I train. I learned PV loops from the 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 master himself, Dr. David Cassett Hopkins, who was the investigator who downsized the conductance catheter to make it mouse sized, which was a big big challenge at the time. I'm a big fan of doing both because, first of all, it's giving you two independent measurements of the same thing, which gives you know great comfort. I think that you've got internal consistency between between echo and pressure volume loops. So having both is great. If if you if you simply can't, probably for this field of diastolic dysfunction, I could see why an investigator might choose to focus on echo. Echo's more available and the the doppler characteristics that the echo echo gives you the echo doppler particularly uh things like the e and e prime waves gives you a powerful insight into into diastolic relaxation echo now also gives global longitudinal strain which is affected in hefpef as you could see in um figure 2c so i would always encourage investigators to try to do both. And of course, we're always willing to, to help people if they want to collaborate. If they, if they don't have the setup, we can always help them. I'm sure there are plenty of labs around that would, would do the same. So I encourage both, but if you only have one, I think you're going to be able to do it with echocardiography. Thank you. And just to follow on from that, did you experience any difficulty putting the HEFPEF models on the treadmill for the exercise tolerance test? I don't think so. I, th I think we got very good and robust data. I will say that the, the first uh, authors really spent a lot of time to get all of these things worked out. Like everything with a new model in, in a lab, there's a, there's a learning curve. And if you take a little bit of time working the kinks out, then you're going to get a good result. So they were able to get the mice to exercise. The other thing that's challenging to do, which they also spent a lot of time working out, was these glucose tolerance tests in, in, in the mouse, which is which is in figure one. And that's, you know, that's a very important feature of the of the model as well. So, you know, I want to give a real shout shout out to um Rosemary and Laura, who are the first two authors who really um, worked hard to get this model as operative as it is in our laboratory. Well, you, you heard it here, folks. Uh, if you want PB loops done, send them to Joshua Harris lab at University of Miami. His shipping address will be in the description of the podcast. No need to contact him ahead of time. Just show up with your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh said something earlier that struck me, which is that Hef Pef has definitely taught us some humility 
um, as far as our ability to treat heart failure of any kind, really. And I think humility also in science, that every piece is a step, but it's a small step. And this is definitely at least one step towards hopefully a new therapy for patients suffering from heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And they are in dire need of that. So this is a great paper and a really important step. And we are excited to have it in the journal. Thank you very much, Josh, for joining us today to talk about it. And Julie, for uh, lending your expert insights and ideas for future directions. Thank you. And my thanks to the journal, its editors, and the reviewers. We're thrilled to have the paper in AJP Heart. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.